morning, everyone. Uh, we are continuing along as Elder Daniel has prayed in a series looking at various miracles in the Bible. And today, we are going to take a look at a miracle in which Jesus heals a blind man and gives him sight. And it comes to us in Mark chapter 8. So if you're able, I want to ask you to kindly stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to verse 30. This is God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent, he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. You can take your seats, please. So we've been looking at miracles throughout the Bible and asking the question, do the miracles of God and the man of Jesus mean anything for the modern day person? And I think it has tremendous application. It'll give you meaning in life. It'll answer your deepest problems and issues, both circumstantially, but also internally. And so it has tremendous application and meaning for your life, but we have to look at the Bible and begin to bring that out and explain it and be able to apply it to the 21st century modern person. And in today's passage, we have this simple miracle in which Jesus heals a blind man. And there's a lesson that Jesus wants you and I to know here today, that even though we may not be physically blind, he's trying to tell us the main lesson that all of us in our sin are spiritually blind. And if you want life to resonate, to flow, to fly, then in some ways we have to deal with the spiritual cataracts of our sin so that we could have 20-20 vision in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I have two simple points that we'll look at here today. First, we'll look at blindness. What is the nature of it? What is it like? What does it do? And then secondly, we'll look at sight. So two simple points. We'll look at blindness. And then secondly, we'll consider what is gospel-centered biblical sight 2020 kingdom vision look like? So let's get at it. Let's look at this together. First, blindness. I want to introduce this miracle by saying this, that miracles are something that Jesus just does. If you read the Gospels, he's always performing miracles. He heals the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He exercises demons. He performs miracles, and it's not too hard for Jesus to do this. He does and performs all kinds of miracles in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes he touches people to heal them. Sometimes he just speaks a word. Sometimes he doesn't even have to see the person, a little girl that he says she'll be healed. Sometimes it's just a thought, and then someone gets miraculously healed. That's not too hard for Jesus to do that. And so when you come to this miracle, on some level, it's not any different, but on one sense, it's entirely unique in all the Gospels and all the miracles that Jesus has done. Now, why is this miracle unique? It's different and unique because it's the only miracle recorded of Jesus 
in which he needed two tries to actually perform the miracle. Two tries. He had to do it twice in order to get the job done. Now you have to ask the question, why did it take Jesus two times? Was this man particularly blind? Was the miracle extremely difficult? Why did Jesus need two times? As an aside, what it tells us is at least this. At least be open to it if you're sort of exploring and skeptical about Christianity. One of the reasons that it took Jesus two times is to tell us implicitly that this account and miracle really happened. Because it's not a myth, it's not a made-up story or a fairy tale, commentators and historians will be quick to note the reason they record Jesus performing this twice, two attempts, is because it's probably just what happened. There's no way anyone would make up a story to start a Jesus movement to create a myth or a legend that has to last the testing and time of four generations. No one would be able to write a myth or a legend or to start a movement where the savior and the hero of the story looked a little bit incompetent, two times to heal a miracle. So the reason it's there twice recorded is probably because it's historical and it's real. So you have to deal with the fact that this actually happened, and the burden of proof lies on people who reject the miracle. So at least it tells us there's something real about this, something honest, something really genuine. Because why would you present a savior that seems incompetent? You know, even in verse 23, quickly, Jesus, after the first time, spit on his hands, you know, sort of, I remember when I was little, my mom used to spit and lick her thumb and try to wipe the, the eye booger out of my eye and say, no, can you see anything? Is that better? He sort of does something similar, spits on his hand, and then he touches the blind man's eyes and says, what do you see? And he says, well, it's blurry. I see people, but they look like trees. And it almost conveys to us, Jesus looks almost incompetent. Now, you ever go get your eye examined at the optometrist, and it's more, you go to the machine, they set it up, one or two, and then two or three. Is it clear this way or this way? And honestly, I, sometimes I can't tell, so I just always pick the odd numbers so I can get through the process and be done with it. But that's what he sort of looks like he's doing. He doesn't really know. Do you see anything? One or two? Two or three? He's an optometrist that seems a little bit uncertain about himself. But that's not what Jesus is doing. If you know Christianity, he's far more confident, competent, and powerful than that. So what's going on here? I think... Jesus isn't just healing, but he's teaching. He's trying to teach a lesson. It's an illustration. This is his drama. It's a skit. He's teaching the disciples about the nature of spiritual blindness. The entire chapter, friends, in chapter 8, centers on this idea of seeing. The disciples are slow when Jesus feeds the 4,000. The Pharisees are blind. In fact, in verses 17 and 18, it says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Do you not yet understand? So it's all about seeing in chapter 8. In fact, the commentator James Edwards says in verses 23 to 25, there are eight different words used nine different times that convey the idea of seeing. The whole chapter is about blindness and sight. And the point is that Jesus is the only way and the only person who could give you your sight back. He's the only optometrist in town. He's the only ophthalmologist in the city. He's the only one that will say, read that bottom line on the eye chart, and you'll see it with crystal clarity. Because in some sense, the primary movement 
of Jesus' ministry is going to people like you and me and this blind man, and in the power of his death and resurrection, the movement of his ministry is basically bringing people from blindness to sight, to give them something they didn't have, to now having something from Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and leads him out of the village, touches him twice, and restores his eyesight. He's bringing him literally from blindness to sight physically as an illustration to you and I here today and his disciples of how we need to be brought from blindness to sight spiritually. In other words, friends, the physical healing of the blind man points to your need and my need for spiritual healing of the blindness of our sins. Now, just consider for a moment, you know, because the Gospels are very dramatic, and if you just take a moment and just immerse yourself into the experience of this blind man so you can see the power and the love and the compassion of Jesus, imagine this blind man's experience. You ever hear the love languages, the five love languages? I forgot what the five were. Some are gifts, words of affirmation. This is what I think his man's love language probably would be. I think it's physical touch, an expression of love and tenderness and care that allow this man to feel secure, loved, seen, heard, cared for, not alone. I think and I would imagine that if I had to guess anachronistically, of course, going back to this man, what's your love language? I think he would say, I think it's touch. Verse 22, it says this, And some people brought him to a blind man and begged him to touch him. They carried him through. He can't see where to go. He had some good friends, some people, probably his friends, bringing this man through touch. How is a blind man going to understand where to go? Someone's pulling him or holding him by the elbow, guiding him to this man named Jesus to heal them. And then verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand, that's Jesus, holding his hand, and he led him out of the village to a, a moment that's quiet, to a place that's a little bit more secure, calmer. Jesus holds his hand and I think that probably conveyed to this guy, if you could imagine being blind, someone's taking care of me, holding me by the hand. And sometimes that's what Jesus needs to do. He needs to carry you in life by your hand. This man is led by friends. This blind man is led by Jesus because I think his love language is going to be touch. It conveys comfort and reassurance to this man. A sense that someone cares and someone is there, someone knows him and loves him and he's not alone. And Jesus heals him. And then in verse 26, tells Jesus to go home or tells the blind man to go home. Now, I don't know if this blind man was born from the beginning or had some sort of accident. Whatever the case, we don't know much detail about this, but how in the world is a man supposed to go home? Well, his friends probably had to direct him. It's not as if all of a sudden he had his eyesight back and says, okay, I got to make a ride at the second light. I got to look for physical monuments to know the direction where I'm going. I see the sun is going to be up on the east side. I think I live north. He's not going to have any orientation of where he is. How in the world is this man miraculously seeing things for the first time gets to go home? I wonder where his home is. I wonder if he has a family. Is his mom there, his aunt? 
Does he have brothers and sisters? And can you imagine the response of his household, his family? I don't know if he's married or not. And he comes back. He opens the door by himself. And that's already a miracle to his family. Coming back seeing. And he gets to see his family for the first time. Oh, wow. You, you seem like you've grown. Gets to look at the, his loved ones and his family eye to eye. All because... The experience of the blind man represents a transformation, a healing, and a salvation that brings back life in a new experience for this guy, a new experience of life. In the same way that if we are made to see in the gospel, even though we physically see, but we're spiritually blind, and if Jesus opens our eyes to see, we could see this world with a new experience. Marriages and the difficulty look different. Parenting looks a little bit different. For children, youth, your parents will look different to you. Social media will look different to you. Your friends and the pressure to get grades will all look a little bit different in the same way that this man had his eyes opened and the world is different to him. I read an article once in Sports Illustrated, or rather I heard about an article in Sports Illustrated in which the journalist was interviewing one of the co-founders of Nike. I think his name was William J. Bowerman. And the one thing I heard about this article that always stuck with me over 10 years is that the journalist wrote about Bill Bowerman and said this, it was almost as if he woke up every morning with fresh eyes. And I love that. I love to experience life this way, that I would wake, I'd wake up every morning with fresh eyes, just like this blind man. And if the penny drops, the gospel hits, the Spirit speaks, it could give you fresh eyes like this. And you could see things differently like this blind man probably did. Well, before we go to the second point, let's kind of hone this down a little bit. What are a couple of spiritual lessons that we learn about blindness? I think there's at least two, really quickly. The first thing we know is that Jesus is trying to tell you and me here today Everyone is blind. Everyone needs to see. The disciples are slow to see. The Pharisees have a hard time seeing. That's Mark's way of saying everyone's blind because he went the spectrum from disciples who are fishermen and uneducated to the Pharisees who are elite and powerful and educated and rich. So you span the both ethnic as well as socioeconomic spectrum. Everyone's blind. That's his point. That's Mark's way of saying, wherever you fall in life, wherever your zip code is, whatever your education is, whatever job that you have, whatever experiences that you came from, whatever family that you grew up in, everyone's blind apart from the work of Jesus in your life. That's what Mark is saying. Everyone is spiritually blind. The common man and the disciples and the religious elite and the Pharisees. Everyone is blind in this chapter. The Pharisees, the disciples, and as we are drawn into this chapter, you and I are blind as well. Disciples are slow to see the power of Jesus. Pharisees are slow to see their need for Jesus. And sometimes in life, maybe you fall into one category or the other. Sometimes you don't believe that Jesus can heal the circumstances of your life. And maybe he won't, not in the way that you would want. Sometimes you think the gospel doesn't change me. I'm still as frustrated and angry of a person. There's no change in my life. Or maybe you're thinking the gospel is not powerful enough to change my spouse or my children or the boss at work. Nothing ever changes in life. 
You know, maybe you don't see the power of the gospel doesn't change. Or maybe you're more like the Pharisees, where life seems to be pretty good and you realize you don't need change, or you think you don't. And that tends to be sort of the spiritual blindness of people like the Pharisees, and maybe like you and me, where you're accomplished, you have a network, you're educated. It makes you a little bit blind to your need because life seems really good. In either case, the disciples were slow to see the power of Jesus. The Pharisees were slow to see their need for Jesus. Everyone is blind, and that's the lesson. That's the first thing you learn about spiritual blindness. And if you start from that perspective, a humble perspective, to know that you don't see things as clearly as you think you do, you may not be able to understand with such clarity and intellect as you like to do because you're spiritually blind. The second thing we learn, which we'll see in the confession of Peter, is that spiritual blindness is also really deep. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus took two touches to heal the blind man, to give us an illustration that spiritual blindness is a little bit deep. So sometimes it takes a process for you to see with clarity. You can't read the bottom line of the eye chart. It takes some time. It's a process to do this. You won't see everything clearly at one time. It's a process. You grow in Christ, you see things from a heavenly perspective, and you begin to change. A process to see 2020 spiritually because spiritual blindness is really deep. Friends, you know that it's really deep because it's slow to change not only in your own habits of life, but it's slow to change in seeing people who sort of aggravate you in life, or you're sort of slow to change because of the frustration you have in the circumstances of your life. You know, you can tell that you're changing because you're growing in your eyesight when you begin to love people a little bit more. You're a little bit more gracious over time. You're overly, you're, you're, over time, you're able to have a little bit more compassion. Before, he just sees people as objects or obstacles or people that annoy you or are difficult or you see circumstances of your life as impossible and you're frustrated and you're like a victim, you begin to change. You know that you are changing, that your eyesight is improving when you begin to see things a little bit differently and see people a little bit differently. Spiritual blindness is deep. It's a process. And that's why it comes in stages. And that's why in order to have sight, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes the work of God to bring that eyesight to you. And that leads us to our second point in sight. There are a couple of questions, friends, in life that are probably life-changing for you. Will you marry me? Is it boy or girl? Doctor, what's the prognosis? But I would say, if I could be as bold to say this, the number one question in your life, absolutely, foundationally, preeminently, is who do you say I am? Jesus, in verse 29. Jesus asked the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the answer right, and he says, you are the Christ. You know, he's walking along with the disciples, and he just wants to know. He just wants to see if people are coming to sight, seeing Jesus for who he really is. Who do people say that I am out there? And the disciples will hear the rumors, Jesus. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. He says, okay, but I want to know you. Who do you say that I am? Peter, being the leader, kind of fiery personality, steps up and says, 
you are the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior. And he's absolutely right. That's sort of the indication that when you see Jesus clearly, that is the indication that your vision is crystallizing and clarifying till you could read the bottom line of the eye chart. It's quite remarkable, actually, when you read the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point in Mark chapter 8, Jesus' identity was only given by Mark himself as he writes the Gospel. Or Jesus' identity as a Savior was only given by God or the demons. But this is the first time that a human correctly identifies who Jesus is. In fact, a reference to Jesus as the Christ hasn't been made since chapter 1 in the introduction of what Mark writes and says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It took eight chapters for a human to properly identify who Christ is. Eight chapters for the first human to go from blindness to sight. It took a long time to get there. Jesus didn't rush the process. He didn't push the moment. Eight chapters, or as one commentator has said, anywhere from several months to perhaps a year or even longer. We're not really sure, but we know this moment took some time getting to. You know why? Because we said this, spiritual blindness is deep. It takes a while, eight chapters, for even Peter, who is with Jesus all the time, to be able to gain the sight to say, Jesus, you're the Christ. I think it's starting to make sense. Friends, how would you answer that question here this morning? Jesus comes up and says, who do you say that I am? Well, you could be honest. You could give the head answer and say, Jesus, you are the Christ. But what does your life say? What is your life and your actions, your heart motivations, your priorities and values? I want to listen not just to your words, but I think Jesus wants to listen to your life. Does your life, what does your life say about who Jesus is? Jesus, are you the Christ or are you not? See, don't miss this point, friends, as we try to bring this out. To say that Jesus is the Christ is basically saying Jesus is telling the disciples everything you've known from the beginning of history and the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and all the historical books in the Bible, the history of Israel with the kings, the prophets, both major and minor, are all waiting for, pointing towards, anticipating, salivating, and looking for Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one, to come and do what he's got to do in his death and resurrection to bring people from blindness to sight. Do you know what that means? Jesus is saying this entire universe, this entire world, it's all about me. Now, at first they're saying that sounds pretty prideful and egotistical, and it is. You know, if anybody goes around and in the center of the universe and thinks that everyone draws and gravitates towards you and that you're the center of the world, you're very egotistical and self-centric. It's an egotistical statement unless you are the son of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's saying when you go from blindness to sight and answering the question, what is your words but also your life say who I am, it's saying all of life ebb and flows towards the center of your gravity. It's either Jesus or it's going to be something else. Because all the universe, all that you see in this reality, in some form or fashion, terminates and begins on who Jesus is. He's the center of the world. So it tells us this, there's no neutral position. 
If you think you're apathetic towards Jesus, what Jesus is trying to tell you is that you're not apathetic, you're actually negative. You're rejecting him. You can either be for Jesus or you're not for Jesus. Even in the illustration where Jesus goes and he takes fishermen to go with him in the boat, when he gets in the boat, the fishermen, they don't, the disciples don't stand on the side. They look at Jesus and they get in the boat. You can't stand on the side. You're either out of the boat or you're in the boat. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. If you go from blindness to sight, you either say with your life and your words, you are the center of the universe and I'm going to live my life for you because you're the Messiah or the Christ or you're not. There's no room for middle. You have to go to the extremes. Everything I've done so far, Jesus says, is to really help you see that I am the chosen one. No middle position. You may have heard of this name, Christopher Hitchens. He was a, a very intellectual and well-known uh, atheist. He used to lecture at different universities, debating Christians of different backgrounds, but he, he passed away. But he was a renowned atheist. And in one conversation that he had, in an interview with a Unitarian minister, which, by the way, we don't think is Orthodox Christianity, this is what the conversation said, and I'm sort of summarizing. Christopher Hitchens says this, to the Unitarian minister, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian. The Unitarian minister is saying this to Christopher Hitchens. I'm a liberal Christian and don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. And this is what Christopher Hitchens says in return. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice forgave our sins, you're not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Now, Christopher Hitchens is a non-believer. He went around and dedicated his time to debunk Christianity, and he could even say to this Unitarian minister, if you believe in Jesus of Nazareth as a Christ and Messiah, in that he actually rose again from the dead and sacrificed himself to forgive us of our sins, but you don't believe in that in any meaningful sense, even this non-Christian atheistic believer in Christopher Hitchens says... You're not a believer in any meaningful sense. The words are a little bit hard-hitting. Who do you say that I am? At least Hitchens was honest intellectually. He didn't believe in it, but at least he was able to describe Christianity on Christianity's terms. And that's the real crux of the situation for you and I today, friends. Jesus is the center of your universe, or he's not. Someone has to be the center of your universe. It's either you or it's Jesus. And all you have to do is to listen to your life to say, who do you think Jesus is? Who is the gravitational pull of your universe? Well, I'm not much of a historian, but there was this 16th century Polish astronomer. He had a theory of this universe using the same data of the, as an Egyptian mathematician Ptolemy. This astronomer had this crazy idea that flipped the world inside out. And he actually said, the center of the universe is not the earth, but the sun. It was deemed as a heresy by the church at the time. This 16th century Polish astronomer is a guy by the name of Nicholas Copernicus. And his theory is now known as the Copernican Revolution, in which he told the world the center of the universe is not us, but the sun. 
Jesus is basically saying to the disciples and to you and me, spiritually speaking, we need a Copernican revolution. You are not the center of this universe or your life. Jesus is. As H.G. Wells once said, I am historian, I am not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. Who do you say that I am? Paul Tripp has this funny illustration about a little kid goes to a birthday party. It's not his birthday party, it's his friend's. And sees that his friends is the center of the attention, gets all the gifts, gets all the laughter, gets to blow out the candles on the cake. So this little kid starts having a temper tantrum, starts crying, starts throwing a fuss until a parent brings his kid over and says, this is not your party. And Jesus is implying this. Who do you say that I am? All of history centers and ebb and flows moves in and out towards the gravitational pull of who Jesus is so that Jesus, if he is your center, dictates how you love people, dictates how you use your time, determines how you spend your Sundays, how you think about work, how you think about all the broader implications of the economy and social justice, even war, even politics. Jesus actually is the center of all things so that there's an ebb and flow from the center of this universe because you know why this life that you now live this is not your party you'll notice that in the passage the blind man here is entirely passive he doesn't do anything to receive his sight jesus had to do this he led him out by hand touched his eyes twice and the reason that this blind man was able to see is not because he was more insightful or because he was smarter or because he had more wit. The only reason he was able to see is because Jesus was the primary mover and shaker. He was the main actor. He came in love and grace, led the blind man out by his hand, and he wanted to heal him. That's the way it is with you and me. Through the word of God and the gospel, Jesus will lead us out. You can't work your way up into sight. You can't, through your moral accomplishments or your academic vocational achievements, through your intellectual prowess, through the zip code that you live, nothing in this world will allow you to operate on yourself to bring you to sight. Jesus has to do this because we're like the blind man, entirely dependent and passive. It's interesting because in the passage in the verses I've read, all the people that we've read about, none of them have any specific names. We're not told anything about this man except for his ailment. We're not told anything about the people that brought him, this blind man's friends. And the reason is because Mark is writing his narrative and saying, there's a lot of people that made this happen, but their names don't really matter because they're bringing him to Jesus, the name above all names. He's a primary actor. He's a mover and shaker. Jesus takes the center stage. No one has a name except Jesus, and he also has a title and designation that he is the Christ. The blind man has no name. His friends are just some people and have no name. Jesus is the center. In fact, when you think about this, as I've already alluded to, the first eight chapters are about the identification of who Christ is. It's about the identification of Jesus and not you. 
the narrative of the story moves towards identifying Christ because that's the most important name and question that you have to answer in life. The demeanor and thrust of your life should be gospel-centered. Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one that redeems. He's the one that gives you sight. He's the one that gives you clarity. He's the one that can harmonize your life. He's the one that will make meaning out of community. He's the one that will make meaning out of your suffering. Jesus is the dominant actor in this grand narrative in which we call life, not you. Jesus is our ultimate center of gravity, not you. Christ and his kingdom is our most pervasive concern, not yours. That's why it says, and some people brought him to Jesus. Who are they? Mark is saying it doesn't matter. You and I, we're some people. And the goal of all of life is to bring people and ourselves to Christ. So as we end this message, I just want to say this in one simple question. Who do you say Jesus is? Look at not just your words, but look at your life. Your life oftentimes shouts ten times louder than the words. And the heart of what we do here at New Life is our vision is to make disciples who are gospel-centered and compassionate and missions-minded. That's just the mission to say we want you to go to sight so that your life and your words say Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the great healer of this world and for your life. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that as people who are fumbling through life in the darkness of our sins, we can come to you and you lead us by the hand, so to speak, to yourself, Jesus. You are the great healer. You can heal our sins. You can bring harmony and coherence to life. Give us a mission, an identity, a sense of purpose of what we're about. Lord, help us to always come to you and bring others to you, Jesus. Help us to realize that the narrative of our lives, the novels that we're writing with our lives, terminates and has as the main character, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this so that you may receive all the glory and all the honor and all the worship and praise. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.